You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. After the Ten Commandments, um, and Hashem says, well, actually, immediately after the Ten Commandments, there's the, there's the credits, which we're not going to go through, in which um, we, right, we we hear about all the people of Hashem, the, 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 sound, the sound effects and such forth. And then... When it looks like the entire scene of the of Sarah Dibros is completed, so then it says, Right? So there's a recapitulation. Hashem says to Moshe, speak to Bnei Israel and say to them, You have just seen. I'm assuming that this is just seen, that this is, relates directly to the Sarah Dibros. Uh, you have just seen that I spoke to you from Shemayim. And then there's a commandment. The commandment um, is in a Pasuk that is hard to parse. Um, it says, Lota Asuni Ti. Um, and then the way that the Trump has it is Lota Asun Iti is its own um, its own unit, and then it says So it sounds like there's an imperative not to make whatever Iti means, not presumably an extraterrestrial, um, and then don't make uh, gods out of gold and silver. Um, the problem is, what does it mean Lota Asun Iti? Right? Usually when you say Lota Asun Iti, you would think it means something et right? Don't do something, make something with me. So you can try and read it as right? Don't make uh, gods of silver with me. You could put the esnacht uh, in in the middle, right over here, as opposed to where it actually the, where the pause is in the drop. And that sounds better, but doesn't it still doesn't help us make any uh, make any sense out of it, uh, right? What does it mean, right? Why is it why would silver be associated with et? And and gold with lo tasu lachem. Why are there two different verbs lo tasu and lo tasu? Right. So the truth is, this is you know, it's a, it looks. You look at it, and you say, oh, yeah, you're not supposed to make idols. But um, it's very hard to figure out what it really means. So let's take a look at some of the attempts. Also, what does it have to do with kumin shemayim dibarti lachem? So the chizkudi says, atem ritem kumin shemayim dibarti lachem. Below min aretz, I spoke to you from shemayim and not from the earth. But don't think uh, that even though I spoke from Shemayim, you might think that you actually got to see me as I really am, whatever that means. Nope. You have not seen Dmut Kvodi, even though I spoke to you from Shemayim, uh, which is also what it means by Kilori Tem Kol Shekane, and since that's the case, that right, that really, uh, right, really, uh, even though Ritem Kimina Shemayim, you didn't really see, see who I really am, and Lachem Lasoti Tilohei Chesavale Zahav. Right? He says, don't you, since you know it wasn't really, or you saw that it wasn't really me, or you saw things that could have no possible terrestrial counterpart, not at all clear what he means. But the end of it, he says, right, he tries to argue that we go from, right, I spoke to you from Shemayim to there is no real image, and therefore you should make no gods. I think in the end of the day, it's really... Chizkuri uh, doesn't add much to our instinctive reading. It doesn't actually relate, so so far as I can tell, to the um, to the complexity of the of the verse itself. Kliyakar uh, comes up with something a lot uh, more complicated and problematic, right? So that what I'm interested in Chizkuri is Chizkuri says clearly the point of this verse is that God has no image, and therefore you should not make images of God. Okay, Mishum Tmunasha Bolam, you can't take any image in the world, Lamar. Zed mut Maria Kavod and say this is what the Kavod looks like. The whole point is you saw Mina Shemayim, and you said, even though I spoke to you Shemayim, whatever you saw wasn't Dmut Kavodi, so don't make any images claiming that they're Dmut Kavodi. Leah Kar says the following. Chazal said, 
that a Kaddish Baruch Hu appeared to Bnei Yisrael at Yom Suf like a warrior, and Har Sinai like an elder sitting in Yeshiva. And he says, well, you know what? When we talk about warriors, warriors usually look ruddy. They're Marei Adoma. And right, Madua Adoma Lubushek, right? Why are your, why are your um, clothes red, right? And your, and your garments, like you just were trampling out trampling out the vineyard, right? That's really Shai's description of God. And he thinks that when you think about the Zakani Yeshiva, you think about um, somebody wearing white. So that's the you know interesting cultural thing. Maybe in Ikli Akar's time, if you were uh, Rosh Yeshiva, you were white, as opposed to now, uh, at least among Ashkenazim and Sephardim, if it picked it up, you tend to wear black. Okay. All right, so we have a we have Sukkim that describe God as well as um, as looking white when it looks like a Zakain. You might think that, okay, so I'll make gold images to remember God the warrior, and I'll make silver images to remember to remember God the elder. So thereby, to draw down to you, via these forms, you'll draw some kind of, uh, of overflow of the, uh, of the divine will. Okay, that that's why it says you saw that I spoke from you as Ramina Shemaya, meaning that you I appeared as a Kenya Shev Bishiva, and you already saw at the sea that there's something red. Al Kain and Itzariklas Hiritchem Shlota Asuni Tielohe Chetzvelei Zablos Asulachem. So the Kliyakar says, but I think it's almost the exact opposite of Chuskuni. They do have images that they could plausibly associate with God, and so now God has to tell you, don't do that. It's not right, as opposed to Chuskuni who says you didn't see anything, so don't make any images. Kliyakar says, you did see things, still don't make any images. Right, that raises the question, why not? But I wanted to, but, but I think pretty clearly the association of gold and silver with sort of arbitrary, they, there are lots of associations. You have to have warriors are red. Okay, there are images, warriors are red. Uh, Zakanim is white. Well, that's a culturally contingent image. Silver is white and gold is red. Those are also you know, sort of culturally contingent, maybe geologically contingent colors. This is a stretch. Uh, as Chizkuni is, it doesn't seem to me that this adequately conveys what the Pasuk is about. Okay, Shadal says, um, He says, So he says, according to the Nikud, meaning the trap, so it's a separate phrase, and that must mean don't make things together with me, meaning don't make me partner divinities. Amnami says, but it doesn't seem to fit at all in context. Why is God all of a sudden here, compl- right, trying to ban uh, images as partnerships? So therefore, he says, Really, it shouldn't say iti, it should say oti, don't make me. Meaning, right, this is what Chizkuni said, don't make me any image. And then it goes on and says, don't make even as a memory of Shemayim, like Kliakar, so he's put them both together. Make no images of God, and also don't make any images that remember other things that are not God. Um, right? And, and it's, it's, it seems pretty clear that he has um, he has prior text in front of him. You don't need this. Why? Just make me, and this is the next passage we'll see, just make me an altar of earth. Okay, so there's a little tension in here, because why do we need anything? Just Davin. Um, and we still haven't really explained. So he's, what, he, what he's accomplished, he thinks, is he has explained the context because now it leads into don't make me these things. Instead, just make me a Mizbach Adama, 
But we don't really know why Mizbah Adamah plays out. And also, it's a pretty historic language to say, Don't make me and Elohi Chesed So here, Shadal says something really fascinating. He says, You should understand that, that um, pronouncing it E.T. is really a rabbinic decision. Because it would be hard for the masses to deal with a statement, don't make God. What would that mean to people? Um, would it make them think that God is makeable, just you're not allowed to do it? It's a very dangerous pasuk. And therefore, Chazal re, re, um, re-nikuted it, even though, and, and connected it to Allah Chesed even though that's not really what it meant. So that obviously also is an extreme stage to claim that although it's not, he's not, he's not the first one who says it, we'll see the Gemara suggested with a very different meaning, but it's a pretty extreme claim to say that Chazal re, um, re, re-trupped the, uh, or, and, re, and re-voweled the, the Torah because people couldn't deal with, the, with that verse. And it doesn't really explain what it adds to the Asura Sedebros. Okay, so Rashbam is right. Now he says, right, Don't make gold and silver gods, even if they're just supposed to remind you of images of God. So the um, Rashbam actually says that, right? Because some people will think they're not just memorials, they're actually powerful images. But then Rashbam says something fascinating. Hang on a sec, how can we tell you not to make images that are in fact our images of the Kruvim on top of the Aron that God commands you to make? So here Rashbam says something fascinating. They were made not as images of gods, but they were made as images of divine thrones. Like the Kruvim of the of God's throne, and they weren't made to bow uh, to be bowed down to. So this is a really bad answer, because we just explained that whatever you make them for, the problem is other people will misunderstand. So even if you right, even if you made you make the Kruvim, you're saying, don't worry, I'm not worshiping these Kruvim. They're just there, as uh, right, they're just there as thrones for the invisible God. But other people will not understand it that way. And in fact, what's really astonishing here, um, and probably I had not seen the connection before this week, but I wonder if it's not where it comes from. Uh, this is what Ramban says the Egel HaZahav is. Ramban says the Egel HaZahav was not intended as an idol of God. It was intended as an, right, as, an, um, as an image of an invisible God, because look, here we have an animal, just like other gods in the ancient Near East wrote on animals, but our writer is invisible. And that seems to be borne out by some archaeological evidence uh, as well that that was the intent. So if that's really what God is saying, that, that if Rashbam is saying the Kruvim are fine because they're just there as a throne, so then why isn't the Egel HaZahav fine? Right? So Rashbam raises a really deep, right, really deep problem here, but I think that's the problem that everyone has to ultimately address, which is how can God say, when he's about to uh, command you to make the Aron, uh, with Kruvim, and then we have to say, okay, why is this happening immediately after the Aserah Hadibrot, which begin with what sounds like a prohibition against making any images at all. Okay, so we should be aware that the, the, the Shadal's claim that Lotasun Iti actually meant Lotasun Oti, that actually is in the Gemara in Avodah The Gemara says all, it's permitted to make all sorts of uh, facial, uh, facial, I don't know what you call it when you make a a statue, a statue of just a head. Uh, I forget what it's called. Um, a bust? Maybe it's called a bright. You can make busts 
of everything except for a um, except for a human face. My Tama. Really read it as if it said Lo Tasun Oti. So Shadal was coming from Rafuna Brain of Yeshua. Rafuna Brain of Yeshua didn't say don't make any images of God. What he said is don't make any images of human beings because human beings, as the Torah says, are B'Selam Elohim. That's a pretty wildly astonishing claim, right? That immediately that we say, you see that I spoke from Shemayim, therefore don't make images of human beings in the belief that that is an image of God. Then the question is, why? If it really says so I like to um, I like to say that right that human beings are the only true image of God. And so really the prohibition against making images is not because we're afraid that you're going to diminish God, but because we're afraid you're going to diminish human beings um, by implying that God's image can be represented by a copy of a copy as opposed to uh, as opposed to the original uh, the original Telem. That's also a very risky theological claim. Um, but I wanted to put this on the table as well, as to write that there is a that Shadal uh, Shadal's reading of OT is precedented, but it's precedented by a rabbinic reading, which thinks that there is a prohibition here against making images of human beings um, because they are Salem Elokim, and so it's a prohibition that at the same time acknowledges the truth of it. Because if you didn't think human beings aren't really the Salem Elokim, then how could the prohibition Lutasun OT relate to images of human beings? Okay. That is the uh, first attempt. I think nobody successfully really explained that first. Uh, okay, other people try and explain it right with more dramatic, um, I guess more the- more explicitly theological as opposed to literary ways, and moving away from images. So Rav Raman Raman quotes Rosadia, I believe Rosadia Gaon, but I don't have another source for it. Shetam amar lota suniti athara ala shituf bemuna. So he treats it uh, not as a prohibition. Lota Suniti isn't a prohibition against making idols. That right? It's a prohibition against a belief that there are gods other than the one God. Uh, parenthetically, I'll point out this has not necessarily have anything to do with um, Christianity because Christianity believes in a divided God. Uh, certain forms of Christianity, um, right? Trinitarian uh, Christianity, uh, we cast a qualified even more than that. Um, but he right. This is a prohibition against believing as um, with God, uh, even as the head of the pantheon. And then he says, "Lo Then also, you can't accept that images have any power, even though those images are not independent gods. They are just uh, they draw their power uh, from God. And therefore, um, right, Rambam Rambam says, I think um, very correctly, he has very elegantly. Solve the problem of why we have two verbs, lotasun iti and lotasun lachem. The first is don't make them, don't don't accept, don't ex- accept any kind of divinity, and the second is don't make images your gods. Um, it's not a great shot in lotasun. It's not clear why it appears here in context, which is the uh, critique that Shadal launched, but it advances our understanding of the pasuk. Um, Ramban tried right. It doesn't explain kima shemayim dibarti lachem. Whatever other gods you believe in could become right. Maybe there are. Maybe you think that he's the god in heaven, right? But right, as we attribute to Paro, right? But he's not the god on earth, right? All sorts of reasons that Kimin Hashemayim would undercut this prohibition as opposed to uh, to advance it. So it's not a great shot in context, I don't think. Although it is a, it really advances our understanding of the inter- of the pasuk internally. Ramban says, Sivashi Marlem, since you've seen that I spoke from Shemayim with you. 
And that I am the Adon in the Shemaim Ba'aris. So how he got Ba'aris, if because he's talking about Shemaim Debartim, I don't know. Therefore, don't don't partner gods of Kesef and Zahab with me. You just don't need anybody else with me. You just already saw how I am the master of everything. Okay, that adds essentially nothing to the asserted Dibrot. Uh, it sort of connects the puzzle causally, but it's not really terribly uh, terribly compelling. Uh, Sibin Ezra comes up with a, uh, I think, a better reading. Uh, and maybe, right, whereas Ramban said the issue is, let's in the you don't need another help. Ibn Ezra says, no, no, no. The issue is, do you need? You don't need anybody as an intermediary, right? So Ezra comes up with, I think, is a great immediate local connection. It's right. It says, you saw that I spoke to you directly from Shemayim, and therefore you don't need intermediaries, uh, right? So don't make these images as intermediaries. So the problem is. That when God spoke to the people we just read the previous section, the people in fact said, "No, you can't speak to us directly. We need Moshe." And God said, "Seems to have acceded to that." So they set up Moshe. So that's going to prepare us again if they go Zahav, right? Because what's going to happen? Moshe disappears, and now they do need an intermediary. Uh, so Ezra has a a beautiful claim in context. But the question is, um, haven't we just? Right, is it really true that they've learned they don't need an intermediary? Maybe they didn't. Maybe their hope, what they learned was that we need intermediary or else we die. So Mezra brings in um, what we might call uh, the golden calf in the room. Uh, it's the same prohibition against making idol, against making images that you believe have power, right? And you'd think you're doing them but right, as if they were intermediaries, what? Right, that this is just like the ego. So God's right, and Ebenezer says, Uvavur Yasu, yeah. and God knows that the Jews are going to make intermediaries. So he warns them, don't do it. But it doesn't work, right? So this is a fundamental problem every time you have a commission, every time Rebano Shalom makes a command because he knows that you're tempted. And it turns out that whatever the, the pedagogy didn't work, and we do make the, we engage in the sin anyway. So what does that learn? Right. What does that teach us theologically? So that's that's a separate challenge. But Ibn Ezra at least has now located this. I think he has the most convincing contextual claim that we have the Ten Commandments. After the Ten Commandments, something happens that's dangerous, which is the people don't want Hashem to speak to them directly. They want Hashem to speak to them through Moshe. And now God says, you saw that I spoke to you from Shemayim, so you don't need intermediaries. And don't make golden ca- golden calves, but you know that you know it's going to happen. And you even know, right, and they weren't ready for it. So that's I think it's a very, very convincing reading. It just runs with the problem is um, maybe God should have done something else because this did not work at all. Okay. Um, now, the Surah Moore, another medieval commentary, um, tries to, right, comes along as follows. He says, you, right, you saw that I spoke to you in Shemayim, even though it wasn't really appropriate for me to speak to you directly. And uh, therefore, don't make it look as right? Right, you hear what this fool says? God knows that 40 days from now, they're going to be making the Egel And if he doesn't show them their Dmut, they would say, ha, huh, we asked God to show us, right, to show us his Dmut. 
he didn't want. That's why we made the eagle. So God shows them some kind of demut, so that they wouldn't, so that they wouldn't be able to argue. You never showed us anything, which is a really right, totally reverses everybody else's thing. I showed you a demut, so now you don't need another demut. Really odd. Um, but I think he says further. He says that temri that I spoke to you panim panim face to face, and therefore you don't need intermediaries. Im tomar. So now Torah more says im tomar. You're going to say but you're still going to say, but <coughs> that didn't work. We really need intermediaries. Now you're banning gold and silver. Who is going to be our intermediary? So God could have said Moshe, but Moshe is not going to be there forever. Instead, God says, Right, that tells you this is a holy place, and you should bring your sacrifices on it. And what's the purpose of the Mizbech? So as opposed to, uh, as opposed to uh, Ibn Ezra, who says that, or it was Ibn Ezra, right? Um, who was the one who said that the Mizbech was there in contrast? Uh, it wasn't Ibn Ezra. Um, uh, right, sorry. As opposed to Shadal, who said that the sh- the, the next passage says in Bakadamata Sali, to say you don't need an, a, an, a, an intermediary. So Ramor comes along and says, no, I'm giving you an intermediary. That intermediary is the Mizbeach. That's a really wild theological claim. And But it points out that if you prefer Shadal's explanation, so you have to say, so why have a Mizbeach at all? Right? That's a, uh, right, that's a, that gives me a weakness. Just right? so We have this ongoing problem is that we know this story takes place uh, within, right? we know it takes place and we know the Egel Azav is coming. We have to try and figure out what is God trying to do, and, and did it work in some way, or is this a record of can be a whole failure? That is an attempt to head off the Eglas Ahav, but really it does not head it off, and maybe it even contributes. Uh, right? So you see Shadal again, right? As 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 strongly opposed as he can says, Don't I don't want to mikdash. I don't want to buy it. None of this stuff. Right? I spoke to you without intermediaries. So now we have radically different understandings of what the Mizbeach is supposed to be. Okay. Um, now the um, right, and the Nitziv also says that right, um, and this, uh, that you don't need intermediaries, and you could argue that Shadal and Nitziv are both in case in situations where Jews are trying very hard to distinguish themselves from Christianity. And one of the big things is that Christianity believes priests have to be intermediaries, um, and right, Judaism, and Judaism doesn't. So that's why they're both trying to say it should be without an, interme- uh, without an intermediary. And it also says that this pasuk comes to precede the thing about the Mizbeach. Okay, so now we have, we understand what the problems are. We have some attempt to put it in context. Uh, context of the Aserah Dibrot, context of the dialogue of Moshe B'nai Yisrael about the Aserah Dibrot, context of the immediately following uh, following episode of the Mizbeach. So now let's take a look at the immediately following section. So right here we have right you saw me in that 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 I spoke with you lotasuniti okay um, so now we're, right now we'll get we'll get into the sections about the um, about the mizbeach so let's watch what happens mizbeach you should make me an altar of uh, an altar of earth and you should sacrifice all your sacrifices on it. So this is actually 
a challenging pasuk. We can see it has the same uh, stylistic feature as the previous pasuk, right? You can read it as lo tasuniti, stop. Or you can read across the etachta. Lo tasuniti elohei chesiv. Lo tasuniti elohei chesiv leizahav. And lo tasulachem. You can break it to this pasuk. You can read it as v'zavakta alav zolotecha v'shlomecha v'tzmecha v'tikarecha v'chol makom asher is kirit shemi. So make me a mizbeach of earth and sacrifice on it. So now we have a little bit of a weak transition. It's a mizbeach of earth, and you can make a mizbeach of earth wherever you find yourself. That's the advantage of a mizbeach of earth, is that it doesn't require any kind of materials, whatever is, whatever is present locally. Or we can read it as, make me a mizbeach adama, sacrifice all your sacrifices on it, and then, entirely separate clause, wherever I mention my name, I will come and bless you. So now we just figure out what's the connection between the first half and the second half. Okay, then we have another question. What if you make me an altar of stones? How can you make me an altar of stones? I just told you, make me Mizbach Adama. So this is one of the places where where um, say Ve'im doesn't mean if, it means when, and it's actually an imperative in the Beit HaMikdash, fine. So at some point, you'll make me a Mizbach Adama. So you have to figure out why you bench from the Mizbach Adama then. When you make it, don't make those stones hewn. Okay, don't make those stones soon, just like Earth. And then we have something that comes entirely out of left field. Because you waved your sword over it, and you desecrated it. Now, I didn't use a sword, I used um, some kind of other metal cutting tool. So this is right, so here again, really, really strange. Uh, really, really strange, just like seems to have no connection to so it means Bach of an imtaseli lotivnet and ten gazit. Right, so it doesn't seem to have any much connection to kichar bechai nafta levat challeah. And then we get and don't climb to my altar with steps. So now asher here is a little bit complicated. You could be it could just mean which you will should not be megalayer bechalav, and it's two totally disjoint statements. Or it could be so that you will not be Megaleh Ebert Chalav, um, right? And that climbing with steps causes your, you to take larger steps, which would reveal your erva if you were not wearing pants. But the Kwanim wear pants. So this is also a really, really weird, uh, really, really weird uh, claim. Here's what I wanted to say. And this is probably, I think, the um, probably, yeah, probably the, the, one, the one thing I think that you can take away from this, uh, from this shear and think about for a long time, I hope, is that we have is a structure in which everything, it reads like everything is just about the Mizbeach, right? So here's Mizbeach Adamata Seli, Mizbeach Avanimta Seli, Lotalev Amalotal Mizbechi. But even though everything is about the Mizbeach, at the end of the day, it doesn't seem like anything is about the Mizbeach. It's about Kol Makoma Shirashkirachimi, it's about swords, it's about Gilui Erva. Right, so I want to just hold that. That is a right. The structure here is, uh, I want to argue, is an attempt to raise a whole lot of other topics and connect them all to the mizbeach. So we have to figure out like why, what is accomplished by this literary device of right of saying everything connects to the mizbeach, even though many of the points we're making do not have any natural connection to the mizbeach. Okay, so everybody tries to figure out what's the mizbeach, what's the point of mizbeach um, adama. So the Targum says, right, this is the way Chazal Pathkin, it has to be directly on the ground and not on stilts, and all right, and therefore you don't need steps. Um, okay, 
but why? I don't know. Uh, the tour says that some people say that Pshat Mizbach of the Mom means the advantage of Earth is that you can't make images in it. I don't know. Can't make permanent images in it, I guess. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, and right in the same token, Mizbach of Anim, don't make it out of hewn stones because with metal tools, you can make um, you can make images um, out of it. Okay, so this is an attempt to connect it to Lehi Chesav or Zahav. Not, I think, uh, compelling. And the other thing is that Mizbach Adamah is simple, and I want just simple stones, and I want everything simple. I don't want fancy gold and silver. Okay. Uh, right, and Rabag deals with the Arishim. He says, Ratsa Hashem yitalel lichvodo, shlo yiru michnaseim hamakomahu ashri aleb alamizbeach. Right, he does. He wants to make sure that their underpants, their their doubloons, are not uh, are not seen uh, are not seen. Okay, that that I have to say. Right, you know, I give him credit for noticing the problem, but uh, wow, that's not really a um, that's not really a compelling um, a compelling read at all. That the the point is to prevent people from seeing they're perfectly elegant uh, Okay, so the most radical explanation I think uh, theologically that we have here is Ibn Kaspi. Ibn Kaspi says the following: Yada Hashem. God knew that because of the Jews' practice and their ancestral practices of Avodah Zarah, they couldn't last without sacrifices. Right? Ibn Kaspi is a, a radical Maimonidian. He's the person who thinks the Rama means the most radical things, um, he says. Since he, right, since he warned them against making, uh, making gods, and their custom was to make you know, fancy uh, altars with designs on them, uh, with designs of their gods on them. Um, okay, therefore, it's Yivano Hashem Yitalel Asot Lo Bizbach Adama Kilara Bechomer Shein Nachon Nachrotno. Right, so he ties in to the um, right to the tour and says, right, the tour is after him. Uh, I think right, but that the purpose of an earthen thing is you can't make images. Then he adds another explanation. He says, Vimal Kol Panim Yirskul Asot Mizbach Amanim. What if they say, you know what, it's just not it's just not right to make God an earthen altar. That doesn't sound right. But then at least make them about rocks that are that are that are not carved. Why? They're still in their natural form. Because if you do if you have artisanal work on the Mizbeach, you're suggesting that your work is better than God's work. And actually, the shapes that God makes things on are the best. Right? As Aristotle said, that the uh, right that nature is more honored than uh, more honored than artifice. And therefore he says a marvelous, um, marvelous linguistic claim. Uh, he says that therefore uh, when we say that when you carve something out, it's a um, it's a it's called pisul because you're actually invalidating it by making it with human hands. The problem with this is this is really fascinating Aristotelian uh, Aristotelian uh, theology. But um, we of course have the statement of Rabbi Kiva who says that you know that we eat bread not wheat and that God gives us a, the mitzvah of Brit Milah to show that in fact human beings can improve. Them. The world is not completed perfect and human beings are allowed to perfect the world. And everything else in the Beit Hamikdash is art, art, artisanship. So this is also really not terribly, uh, really not terribly convincing. And you know, the reason I'm trying to give you all these answers, aside from their intrinsic interest, 
is to say, well, this is a really interesting problem. And Ibn Kasvi points out our problem, right? He reads like this for Amor. He seems to suggest that Mizbeach is there as a concession and that this whole Parsha is a defensive measure. You know, don't make golden stuff, but I know you can't do it without making anything, so at least make the altar, uh, right? So Mr. Amor said they need an intermediary. Um, uh, Ibn Kasvi says that they need to have some kind of sacrificial outlet. All very challenging. The explanation that I most um, like is from a commentary called Do'il Moshe. As we'll see, right, this is a 19th century student of Shadal, uh, but he's actually quoting from somebody whose work I don't know has ever, pub- ever published independently uh, uh, on on Chumash. His work on several on several Sarnam of Nash, I think, were published. Uh, Rabbi Moshe Ernreich Halevi. Uh, here's what he said. I think, I think he has a great shot. He says, one Pasuk says, make me an earthenware altar. And therefore, you know, and the end of that is, make me the point of that is, you can sacrifice to me anywhere with on anything. There's no need for any kind of um, technology, which are right, occultic technology. Then we have old Parshios telling us how to make a Beit HaMikdash or a Mishkan with all these fancy tools. How do you square that, right? That's what that's where Ibn Kaspi failed to uh, explain that. It says, is a fascinating explanation. Kan kan right, that really, what this Parsha is, this, right, the after credit scene, is a vision of what God wanted Judaism to be like. Uh, right? So this was God's desire. He didn't want a house. He didn't want a coin Because the whole land is filled with his glory and all human beings are his servants. Uh, right? And God and God loves Olot when they come voluntarily, not as a product of a right of, of a product of mandatory uh, fixed ritual. But then he says, Umisha Kilkalu, but once the Jews mess everything up when they make the Eagle as a house. Misha Kilkalu Hayu Odruim Lavodach of Shitkazu. Once the once once they, they once the Eagle happened, then the Jews were no longer worthy of that kind of religious, spontaneous, undifferentiated religious freedom. Now they need right now they need boundaries. At least they need boundaries in their service of God. Because if we don't do that, they're going to serve God in all the awful ways the Canaanites did. So God has to create a or God has to create a fixed temple ritual because the alternative is much worse. So this is a this is picking up on uh, on Ibn Kaspi's um, read, but as Ibn Kaspi says. God knew from the very beginning that it wasn't going to work if he translated right, the, the Ramah says he transitioned them immediately. But the Hawil Moshe, I forget the, uh, his name, it's on, it's on Alatara. I'll plug Alatara again, an incredible, incredible uh, set of resources. Uh, he suggests that really, at, in the aftermath of the Asarna de Brod, this was what was supposed to happen. And the Asarna de Brod, and the Egla Zahav is what creates the religion we know. That's an astounding. That's an astounding claim to decide if you think you're comfortable with it or not, thinking that this is a, uh, a notion that gets picked up in a lot of um, early 20th century theology. People, it's very popular now, a claim that um, 
fixed halacha without Hashem is a bidiyavid. Uh, of course, what you could say is um, you can you can you can combine them with Ibn Kaspi and you can say that no, right? What this teaches you, right? What we learn is that this was never possible. It's utopian vision, but the utopian vision never right was not right. As you can see from the angle, right? the angle was inevitable, and there was never any hope of building a religion um, like that. So right, so the fact that this is what right. This is what God said afterwards. Doesn't mean that it was ever realistic. It's just they left there as a uh, as a chazal. Or you can reject it entirely and say right, which is you know many people's reaction to this the whole Mamedian um, vision. It can't be that um, that Kribanos are not um, that fixed Kribanos Tamid is not is not an ideal uh, right. So really, three positions. One is that it's really that that set of fixed rigid commandments is the ideal. You know the notion that it. That it really wasn't supposed to happen, but it happened because we blew it. And you have the possibility that it's not that it's an unattainable ideal to have that kind of utter religious freedom, and it was never attainable. Okay, so that's a uh, right. So two big things to take away. One big thing is the mizbah, mizbeach being integrated into everything else, and the second is this notion that what we have here is not really supposed to be read as part of our existing halakhic system, but as a really as a rejection. Of what eventually becomes the uh, the halachic system, which is really quite uh, quite radical, uh, quite radical. It doesn't really explain Amy's bach of anim so the uh, right. So that it has weaknesses as well. Okay, so now I want to get to um, really, um, I think the um, point of the whole share. Then we've read and uh, gotten through a lot of stuff. Uh, so we'll have time to lots of time, I guess, to take questions. Yeah, I want to read. Uh, usually, I don't read. I, I don't read Rafersh in a Shot Shira, but here I think Refresh captures something that I, um, that aside from um, being edifying in a way that I think is really worth a lot of discussion, I think that he captures something about these psukim that I have not found anybody else um, anybody else saying, and I'm going to offer it to you as the third major uh, takeaway of this year. Uh, it's connected to the first. Let's um, let's sum up now, right? We'll go back and read. The part before the summary later, uh, right? Because he gets this is So the first thing Refresh gets literarily is that this is not really a new section. This is where I call the the post credit scene, right? This is the right. This is the end of the Aserat Hadibrot scene, although it comes after the narrator's description of the which is after the Aserat Hadibrot as well, which is what I call the credit. So here's what he gets. I think step one, which I think is absolutely correct. So these commandments, he says, are opposed to, are are intended directly against the three sins that um, tunnel under our uh, relationship with God. Right? These are the, these are the the sins that undermine our relationship with God. Is the whole purpose of God giving us was the Torah was the was to distance these sins from us. All the Torah is about these three sins. and to uproot any trace of them in our in our midst. Right. So this parsha is really a, a statement of the big three. Uh, idolatry, whatever you want to call it, right, or false worship of God, 
um, homicide and various kinds of sexual transgressions that are about the uh, about the intrinsic relationship of the parties as opposed to about the uh, as opposed to some way in which one party is mistreating the other or the related ancestral relationships uh, or but an adultery fits in that in a complicated way uh, right these are Havira. now he tells he tells you it offers a classification of these three sins he says these are these are the most of your sins. Right, so one of them, is a sin that is and also right, a sin between right, interpersonal sin. And he has a third category, which is usually made more famous uh, attributed to the Vilna Gaon, which I assume is where uh, Rav Hirsch got it from. Uh, but he introduces this part right here, right, the is a, is a sin between human beings and God. Shrikut is an interpersonal sin, and Gilei Arayot is a, right, committing these sins, damn it, right, is a sin against yourself. All right, and that's a point out, right, that he's, his conception, which I think is, is correct as a matter of Torah, is that the sexual sins in the Ikra are not, um, victim, are not seen as, what, what, what's wrong about them is not that you victimize the other party, but that you victimize yourself, right? The crimes in which you victimize the other party are in Mishpatim and in Devarim. Okay, now he breaks it up. He says, So Kim Chaf through Chaf Aleph are Avodazara, Pasuk Chaf Bet is Shvichut Tamim, and Pasuk Chaf Gimel is Gilei Ariot. So now we have to go back and look and see, right? Interesting claim. Chaf and Chaf Aleph is Avodazara. So let's look at the Pesukim. So he thinks that the Pasuk Yotet ends here. Pasuk Chaf is Avodazara. That's very clear, right? Lo Tasuni Tilei Chesvei Zav Lo Tasu Lachem. But now he has to figure out Mizbach Alamim Taseli Adamat Taseli. So it would be nice if we had we went over Zara and then But the problem is this pasuk. We have to say that this pasuk, which mentions the Mizbeach, is really about Avodazara. So it turns out for him, right, that that he recognizes our structure that even though this right, every pasuk mentions. Right. The three psukim here each mention the Mizbeach. They're the Mizbeach, but they're really in three different contexts. This is the Mizbeach, but it's connected to Avodazara. This is the Mizbeach, but it's connected to, right, this is the Mizbeach, but it's connected to Shvichut Tamim. And this is the Mizbeach, but it's connected to Gilehariya. So now, how, how well do we pull off the connection? Okay. So he says, Hashem ha'chevra ve'adam, hem ha'nosim she'elehem mechuvenat ha'tra'alokit. So, these are God's three, these are the three purposes of Torah. They're designed to create connection to God, to society, and to your true self. And those are the three, right, the three, uh, three connections as opposed to the right, Rosenzweig's God, Israel, Torah, Remus, God, Israel, and human beings. And, right, those are the subjects toward which the divine Torah are, are, are directed. So here, here we get to Rav Hirsch's, um, or ultimate point, right? Yeah, we give it a literary point right now. I think his literary point is very powerful. And he says, "Kishem shetochid matan Torah eno mashenim sabit chumo shal Hashem shal Hashem lemala eliyachasinim Hashem." So the the content of matan Torah, God doesn't spend any time engaging in angelology and describing the Masei Merkava. None of that happens. It's just content about how we are supposed to live our lives and how we're supposed to relate to God, right? What is it? 
the content of revelation was our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and our relationship with ourselves. Right, so now this is right, this is an amazing claim. He says that just like the content of Torah is all about humanity, the content of Torah is human relationship with God, human relationships with each other, human relationships with themselves. Um, and it's not it's not it's not about what it's not about the nature of God. It's only interested in God insofar as it enables us to relate to God. Uh, right? To some, to some extent, this is an anti-philosophical position because it, it, prim- it, um, it prioritizes relationship over understanding. But I don't want to, I don't know really how, uh, right, since, since for, um, right, for philosophers, understanding and relationship are fundamentally the same thing. I don't want to, I don't know, I don't know really, I don't know Rav Hirsch's theology well enough to know where he takes this. But now he says, So just like the content of Matan Torah was exclusively about those three topics, so too, these relationships alone, they are the content of the subject of the imagery, of the symbolism of the Beit HaMikdash and everything sacred in it. The, the, the subject of both the Mizbech and the Torah are the human being. And the way in which the, bound, the human bounds should be raised on the earth. So what matters to us as a question of Pshat here is, when he tells you, right, the way Rafir um, reads this, and I think this is a... A spectacular literary claim, if you right, if one can be convinced by the theology and the symbolism. And what he says is that the whole purpose of this section is to tell, right, is to um, show how the mizbeach is really just about avoiding of adazara shvichot davim and That's the whole purpose. They don't think the mizbeach is about God. That's not what the Mizbech is about. The Mizbech is about halacha, and specifically about these halachos, which are essential to uh, creating a healthy, um, a healthy religious life in human terms, but nothing whatsoever to do with God in, of, in and of himself. So that's his claim. So let's try to figure out right, how, he pl- right, how he, see how he plays it out. Okay. All right, so he says, um, these five sukim which have many, many implicate, many far-reaching implications, um, right? Are all about the about our um, are all about our um, relationship with our intermediaries with God, right? So he gets that as everybody else did. Um, that the entire the nation as a whole, and also every individual saw with their eyes and heard with their ears. So the ears are right. Uh, right. So we always have that sort of synesthetic interplay with them. Whether um, Matan Torah was or was the, whether the content of Matan Torah was visual or oral uh, at the revelation of Sinai, and they saw absolutely clearly that God spoke to them without intermediaries and collectively and individually. So therefore, they should have realized that human beings do not need any kind of intermediary to God. Now, therefore, right? Therefore, that should prevent us, he says, from having anything standing next to God. So the only purpose for having for God having uh, for having having subordinates is 
to be intermediary, but if God is willing to, um, if God is willing to speak to us directly, there's no need for, uh, for intermediary. Okay, and therefore all we need is God's bracha. Okay, right? This is his first attempt. As opposed to understanding God through visual images, we understand God through the content of his, uh, right, through the content of revelation. I think that's the best way we can say as surat birchato. Uh, so what we learn from God is from what God does for us. Right? We learn from God's actions and not from any depictions, uh, not from any depictions of, uh, of God. Right? We have images, right? Symbolic images, um, and we have, uh, we have objects and we have deeds. But here he says the fundamental nature of Jewish symbolism is that human beings do not need these images in order to depict God to ourselves. Rather, right, so this is a huge claim. It says, God, Human beings don't need these images in order to depict God for themselves. Symbols are not needed by human beings in order to understand God. Symbols are needed by God in order to convey certain things to human beings. Right, so that's, I think, is a fascinating claim. You might say, well, if God needs symbols, so then don't we need symbols to understand? But it's very important for a Hirsch that the, right, that the experience of God can be unmediated. What God wants from us might require mediation. And so God uses symbols to do that. But it's not because we can't hear, we can't experience God directly. So now what he's trying to do here, of course, is to say, right, that the purpose, right, so let's watch what he did in terms of the Psukim. What he said is, um, make a Mizbach Adamah, as opposed to, as many people previously said, because would suggest that you need intermediaries or you need some way of depicting God, and make a Mizbach Adamah makes it clear that you're not depicting any, you're not, right, that's, that you don't, you're not, you don't need the, the Mizbeach to represent God, and he wants to argue further, you don't even need the Mizbeach as an intermediary because it's just a, it's just a pile of rocks. But the point is, right, how do we really experience God? How, how do we know God? How do we know what God wants? Because, right, and this is, is the only point I think there was any kind of real connection here is, because God is everywhere, and the way we know about God is through his blessings, the things he does for us, and therefore make me a Mizbeach Adamah. Uh, right, and so he takes the anti the anti symbolic nature of the Mizbeach. He doesn't say it's because you can't draw images on it. I think uh, but it's because it's just the point is that Adama represents. First of all, I think he doesn't say this, but I think Adama and Adam is there as the really represents yourself, as opposed to right. And that's if you tie that in, right? The Mizbeach Adama is an altar on which you sacrifice yourself, and not an altar on which which functions as an intermediary. Um, and the point of it for him is that the Mizbeach Adama symbolizes that you learn from God in his presence everywhere as opposed to requiring a sacred place as an intermediary. Okay, then the second thing, right, is that the, even though, he says, even though the Mizbeach is a place of violence, it's very important to make the, to understand that Mizbeach has to be a place of constructive violence as opposed to destructive violence. And that's why he argues that, um, 
that the halacha holds that the that the actual sacrifice does not take place on the altar at all. You can't be beneath the cherev over the altar. You have to right, you sacrifice you sacrifice the animal below and then you bring it up to the then you bring it up to the altar. And the uh, and he and he thinks that fundamentally the sacrifice is supposed to be the the essential nature of sacrifice is that you're sacrificing for food. That's why you're supposed to you're supposed to eat it even if you don't eat it. That's why we still call it. Uh, right, we still describe it as as uh, as lechem right, as lechem of God, which is really a, a stretch. Um, but his his overall claim is right is that right, is that the mizbeach also serves as a counter to um, right to un right to uncontrolled violence. I think that's a, right. It's I think that is uh, it's clear that the connection between mizbeach and shvitzot damim is being made because ki char on the other hand, his explanation is not entirely uh, as to how it gets there is not necessarily entirely entirely compelling. And then, of course, the last scene is uh, Gilariot, um, right? Is that right? That's where we get the. It's just symbolism, right? Don't put. It's not right. Of course, you're wearing Mikhosayim in addition, but it's just a symbolic thing that we're that um, don't have steps as a way of reminding you not to engage in um, not to engage in in uh, that kind of sin. Okay, so I think Rafersh offers far and away the best literary reading. He point he notes what I think is a key literary feature, which is that the purpose of this section, immediately after the Asarhdi Brood, is to connect uh is is to connect the Mizbeach to uh to to the prohibitions against the Barzara Gilariot and Shikhut Damim. The way Rafersh tries to make that meaningful is by claiming that the that what it's really doing is trying to control the symbolism of the Beit HaMikdash, and to make you understand that the Beit HaMikdash is about what human beings are supposed to become and not about direct knowledge of God. So the only thing I would add to that is, and I think that this might explain, uh, this might explain the Charbacha uh, better. Uh, I think Rehosh is entirely right that, the, that, that, that that's the symbolic purpose. Um, but what I would argue, perhaps what he's saying, and this kind of ties into my own, uh, my own connections, is that really what we're saying, the reason we do this immediately after the Asar Hadibrot, Reverse says because they tell you that's what the whole Torah is about. Um, but I think it's because I want to suggest that religious experience is a profoundly dangerous thing. It leads people to break, right? It leads people to break all these barriers. As we find out, um, very, very soon in terms of the Eagle, right? Where they engage in Avodah Zarah, right? In Chazal's understanding, which seems, you know, which has a basis in Shad, they uh, they kill Khur and they threaten right in our own states that he was threatened if they wouldn't um, but if they wouldn't in, engage in it and by Kumul Tzachik is uh, is a Vodazara that the the Yitzhara for divine experience is a very powerful it's it's a Yitzhar Tov but it's also a very powerful Yitzhara so what it tells you is that the purpose of the Beit Hamikdash is to channel that Yitzhar um, right that. You might think that religious experience is an unmitigated good, but actually is no, but at least you have to have some kind of formal, you have to have some kind of um, formal ritual wherever you are. Right? That it always has to be, right? So there, I'm arguing directly against the emotion. Wherever you are, it always has to be bounded. Even every place you are, at least you have to build some kind of mizbeach. Um, and you have to be, right? And there's violence. Violence in religion are very much connected, so you're, so the, the violence of religious violence is limited to killing animals on an altar. And you have to be very clear that no element of sexuality is allowed in the Jewish religion. What we do instead is we locate the, um, we, we connect Kedusha and sexuality 
in the house as opposed to in the temple. So that's why I would argue um, which... Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 